There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Yes, yes. Welcome in to another edition of the Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. Ryan Kelly and his team, the sponsor of our studios here on the Tim McKernan Show. Go online at TheHomeLoanExpert.com and refinance or find out the numbers for a purchase just by going to TheHomeLoanExpert.com. And the tabs are right there. I'm going to click on refinance as we speak. Oh, look, now it has allowed me to enter in some information. And then I can find some numbers. Five minutes can save you $500. Why not do it? It is an outstanding website, thehomeloanexpert.com. I personally know Ryan. I personally have sent family members to do business with his staff. And I can send you there as well to save money with a refinance or to buy the home of your dreams. Go to thehomeloanexpert.com. Ryan Kelly, our loyal studio sponsor from the get-go here on the Tim McKernan Show and it is our pleasure to broadcast from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios and bring you reporter Armin Contain. I don't really even know where to call him reporter from. He's been on 60 Minutes. He's been on Real Sports on HBO. He's written books. He's been a sideline reporter. He's done it all. And we had him on for two reasons, to talk about his book on Tiger Woods, um, which I have found to be one of the best books I have read in recent months, and also to talk about the state of sports journalism. I always enjoy those kind of conversations. The detail with regard to Tiger Woods in his book and then the number of sources he cites makes it read more like like a magazine article than a book. It's just so well done. If you love 60 Minutes, if you love real sports, you will love this book. Um, I would recommend it even if you're not a golf fan. It's just so well done. And so we talk about the book, details in the book with Armin, and then also the state of sports journalism, which gets him all fired up. He's our guest this week on the Tim McKernan Show, Armin Katayan from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. So Armin, I have I've been reading this book, and last night my wife uh, said to me, you seem so fascinated by this book. And I said, I'm telling you, this has been such a incre- such an incredible read but it's because of the detail that you and Jeff Benedict went to in finding out as much as possible about one of the most prominent athletes of our time that makes it so rewarding. Because there are the stories that many of us are familiar with, but you go to sources to get details that we hadn't heard. Would that be an accurate portrayal, in your opinion, of the work that you guys spent on, oh, on this project? absolutely. Yeah, Tim. That was sort of our marching orders was – you know, you Tiger has been um, in plain sight for the better part of uh, four decades, and um, he's been a child star since the age of two. And you know, most of us of a certain age have watched him uh, grow up through the amateur ranks and T 
take over and, and, and really change the PGA Tour. Um, and then, you know, the dramatic rise followed by the equally epic fall from grace. So you think you know the story, and um, to a certain level you do. But, you know, the devil's in the details. And what Jeff and I tried to do was to uh, take the architecture of his life and then really break it down sometimes almost, you know, week by week and, and um, uh, person by person that he was engaged with during certain periods of his life. And, you know, that only comes from a couple of things, uh, 30 years of experience at pretty high level reporting, um, but also three years of time, which really allowed Jeff and I to a find a lot of these people that may have only been mentioned once or twice in a, in an article someplace, and then, uh, develop relationships and, and, um, a trust with them that allowed them to, um, to come forward and, and tell their stories. Regarding that specifically, I thought the detail on you getting a conversation with Marco Mira, who he was so close with, yeah. illustrates the legwork that you and Jeff conducted in order to get access to these primary sources. And I'm sure many of our listeners are not familiar with that. So if you would, give that story. Um, well, obviously, as you mentioned, Mark was sort of Tiger's big brother when he came on the PGA Tour, a very accomplished professional uh, in his own right, uh, had never won a major, however, until 1998. Um, but Tiger, you know, and Mark become very good friends. And um, that goes on for the better part of, um, you know, 10 or 12 years um, until the crash. And um, I didn't know it at the time, but, but their relationship basically um, broke after the crash. Tiger never returned any of Mark's calls. And I knew that Mark was going to be um, a critical interview for our book on any number of levels because of his insight into Tiger as a as a pro and as a player, but also, you know, understanding what was happening um, when Tiger moved to Isleworth. And, and really, Mark and his first wife, Alicia O'Meara, became Tiger's second parents. And so we we have a house. My wife, Dee and I have a house in San Clemente, California, and I knew that the Champions Tour was uh, had an event in Tucson, Arizona. So we drove seven hours from San Clemente to Tucson. Um, I, I, coincidentally, a, 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 a town I'm very familiar with because our daughter went to the University of Arizona. So mm -hmm. they were they were playing the Champions Tour event there, and I it was a pro am day, um, which is a Thursday on the on the PGA Tour, uh, the Champions Tour, and. Um, uh, I just walked up to Mark. Um, I think it was on the 13th hole after he had after he had finished and introduced myself. He thankfully knew who I was, and I was we were walking from from green to tee. I quickly explained why I was there, and we just started to walk and, and talk. And um, you know, I said, you know, do you mind if I record this? And we're literally he's he's teeing off with his with his foursome, uh, fivesome, four other guys. And I'm just walking down the fairways with him, interviewing him about his relationship with, with Tiger. And that went on for the better part of, uh, six or seven holes. Uh, probably one of the strangest interviews I've, you know, I've ever <laughs> conducted, uh, certainly in time and place. But Mark was, um, 
you know, he was open and it was the perfect kind of setting. And I was respectful of his of his playing partners because I did not want to. They were paying to play with Mark. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to monopolize the time. And so we, you know, Mark would would hit a shot and then he'd walk with me and then he'd kibitz with the partners and he'd come back over to me. And I, you know, I was prepared um, in the sense of, you know, a little bit of a journalism lesson is when you're doing something like that, you don't want to do it. Um, you're doing it on the fly anyways, and you don't want to like come up with questions off the top of your head. So I had prepared in my notebook, a list of questions that I wanted to address. So I was able to, you know, address those questions, um, somewhat in the order in which I wanted to, uh, but at the same time, just allowing Mark to talk and, uh, you know, it turned out to be a really powerful interview, particularly when, you know, Mark was talking about um, the fact that they had not communicated. Uh, and this was in, uh, I believe, in 15. Uh, they had not communicated in, in the better part of six years. And, you know, there's a very powerful quote in there from Mark says, you know, sooner or later, you have to be a human being. Yeah. And uh, that was one that I think of all the quotes in the book is in the top probably, you know, four or five. What does he attribute their lack of communication to? Is it, the, is it as simple as the accident? It's Tiger. You know, when, when Tiger was, after the accident, Tiger cut off communication with virtually everybody. Charles Barkley, who was one of his closer friends and had known Tiger since 1996 and had, you know, spent 10 or 15 days a year with him, mostly in Vegas, gambling and, and um, being out and about. Uh, reached out as a friend would do, never heard a word. And Charles has not heard from Tiger. Um, he just said it this year. He had not heard from Tiger since uh, the evening hours of November 27, 2009. Um, it's part of Tiger's personality, it, much like his father. Um, you know, when, you're, when Earl Woods was done with you, he was done with you. When Tiger is done with you, uh, whether you're Butch Harmon or Hank Haney or uh, Fluff Cowan or Stevie Williams or his first girlfriend, uh, mm -hmm. Dina Gravel, mm -hmm. um, that's just Tiger Woods' way. And um, it's, a, it's part of his DNA, or I should say was part of his DNA. I think he's, he's changing and he's changed quite a bit in the last uh, six months yeah, to a year. But, um, you know, it's heartbreaking on the other side because um, just to finish the story, I mean, Mark goes into the Hall of Fame, the World Golf Hall of Fame, and the induction ceremony is at St. Andrews in Scotland during the British Open. Um, Tiger is playing in the British Open, and he's on the grounds there um, in, in St. Andrews, and 21 world golf hall of famers show up at mark's induction ceremony and tiger doesn't show up um and that was just mark had a really hard time understanding that uh to say the least that given everything that had transpired between the two of them that um tiger was whether he was afraid to show up or whether he um whatever the reasons were and i don't know what they were it, it was um it was heartbreaking to mark you know, it, it, the fact that you bring that element up, and for those who haven't read the book, 
I would recommend so passionately reading. It's just a fascinating read. It reads like a, like an in-depth journalistic piece. That's how I would describe it, uh, different from a book. And John Seymour, the producer uh, with whom I'm sitting in the studio right now, who is not as hardcore of a golf fan as I am, said he thought that the first part of the book regarding the background of Tiger was so fascinating because it helps explain the yeah. why and the yeah. how. And so much of that can be summarized Unfortunately, it seems in one word, four letters in Earl. And you guys do such a great job of conveying not only Tiger's personality, but also how Earl uh, perhaps played a role in how he became such a great golfer. Not perhaps. I think it's crystal clear. It, it what like what was it six months you said he was out there watching Earl hit balls into a net and then he's able to pick up a club and do the same thing. And, and that's something that I even as a as a Tiger Woods fan, as a golf fan. I wasn't aware of all of that history and the detail that you guys were able to get shows, I guess, if do you believe it? Do you believe that, that Tiger Woods' personality now is essentially Earl Woods' personality 30 years ago? Large sections of it, to be sure. Um, you know, the question that really drove Jeff and I and <clears throat> was, you know, two things. You know, who is Tiger Woods? And we were all awed by his talent and and thrilled to watch him on a Sunday afternoon, whether it was at Augusta or the U.S. Open somewhere, just doing things that were almost unimaginable to to uh, people like myself and yourself who play the game of golf. Tiger was just operating on a, in a completely different level. But how did he get that way? And, and the, the to understand Tiger Woods, you have to understand Earl Woods and Coltita Woods, his mother and mm-hmm father. And that is a Shakespearean kind of an arc that that we fairly soon discovered. And once we once we knew that so much of Tiger um, was programmed or built or manufactured um, in his relationship with his parents, who, as you said, you know, Tim, early on, um, decided that they had a son that was destined to change the game and change the world when it came to the uh, to, came to golf. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a there's a price to be paid for that, and you know Earl's sense of entitlement um, uh, certainly that was even greater once Tiger became a star. Um, the racism and the discrimination that that Earl um, very. Uh, uh, accurately and, and rightly faced, not rightly, but I mean, that was, this, it was part of the times mm-hmm. in the military and in college when he, when he broke the color line at Kansas state as a baseball player, um, you know, in the, in the 19, you know, fifties and in sixties, it was, it was a, um, uh, it was part of Earl's story that became part of Tiger's story and part of Tiger's life. And, and then as Tiger and Earl, um, got closer and closer, there really wasn't any other place for Tiger to go. Anybody who, who um, moved into Tiger's life, uh, a gentleman by the name of John Merchant, who was yep. so vital and important and, and almost invisible in, in many measures in, in, in the larger story that had been told about Tiger, but was a critical component in raising tens of thousands of dollars so Tiger could play amateur golf um, all around the world. Um, and compete all around the world, um, cut off by by Earl Woods, um, amputated really from Tiger's life um, summarily, 
over an argument that they had about what would John's role be um, in, in, in improving minority golf in this country. So, um, yes, there are – it's almost like they're the, the triangle um, of, of father, mother, and son with Tiger in the middle of a fairly, um, to be honest, dysfunctional family in the, in the all-American – um, ideal of what um, of what family life should be like. Um, Tiger was a uh, a very shy, very awkward, very nerdy child who stuttered until the age of seven and was, in many ways, um, at least socially, ill-equipped to to handle the almost unimaginable fame and fortune. Uh, that was placed on his shoulders in part because of his talent, but also because of, because of Earl's, for lack of a more articulate phrase, big mouth when it came to um, projecting and promoting uh, what his son was going to do um, as far as sports were concerned. It was after his second amateur win, Armin, where he yeah. stood up there and said in front of an audience at Newport, that yeah. Bobby Jones can kiss his son's black ass. Yeah, that was it. And can you imagine? I mean, that scene, Tiger has just won his second straight U.S. Amateur. It's 1995. He's on the grounds of the Newport Country Club, um, which is about as, you know, Commodore as Commodore can be. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of African-American people standing around in, in that club unless they are caddying or you know, they're working in, you know, in the kitchen or serving. And Earl had had a few cocktails, as he was wont to do. And Tiger's holding the trophy inside a merchandise tent, basking in the glow of his come-from-behind victory over Buddy Marucci. And um, Earl grabs the trophy and, and goes on this, like, two-minute rant um, that was um, – Appalling, frankly, to a lot of the club members who Jeff talked to, um, including exactly the phrase that you said, Tim, you know, Bobby Jones, arguably the greatest amateur player in the history of the game, can kiss my son's black ass. And that was, I mean, talk about stopping the music uh, right there. And Tiger found himself in in that kind of situation time and time again with his father. Um, You know, and it just... He handled it with with grace, but I can't imagine, um, as a son to a father, having to deal with that in the most public kind of situations. And it and it really did color um, Tiger's, uh, you know, that like father like son um, adage: "The apple doesn't fall far from the tree." Tiger took on parts of Earl's personality. Uh, certainly the entitlement, certainly the um, the distrust of the media, um, and really the the distrust of of people that were there were there to do nothing but help Tiger. Uh, Tiger didn't see them as any oftentimes any more than avenues to get what he wanted done, mm-hmm. and uh, you know to the real detriment um, of some some people that wanted nothing more than to have a thank you um, or an acknowledgement of what they had done. Perfect segue into the next question I had for you. Steve Scott, 1996 U.S. Amateur. And I thought the way, 
you know, I guess when it gets down to it, the way you you and Jeff write it, uh, I suppose the story essentially wrote itself, but it presents such a dichotomy. One has gone on to become one of the best golfers in the history of the game. The other wound up not doing much of anything in the game, is now a club professional, but has this incredibly fulfilling family life with uh, the wife who was, at the time, she became like the darling of the amateur, his caddy. Yeah. Uh, and you and you guys lay out their stories, plus the other golfers he beat in those U.S. amateurs. But the specific story of Tiger went to mark his ball. He moved it over to the left for Steve because his mark was in Scott's line. And as Scott's walking off the green, he sees that Tiger hasn't replaced the mark in the proper position and therefore would have lost the hole... Yes. But Steve Scott says to him, Tiger, you need to, to move the ball, Mark, back over yeah. to the proper spot. Yeah. He doesn't have to do it, and he would what, he would have won the match there, Armin? Is that how yes, it Yes, he would have won wow. the U.S. Amateur. In what a moment in history that is. I know. And Steve, I mean, it's incredible. You know, Tiger, you know, take a look at that. You know, uh, you got to move that back. And, you know, that is the that is the essence of the game of golf, the integrity of the game of golf, that Steve wanted to win it with his clubs and not with, you know, by a mistake, by his by his uh, playing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, partner there. And it was it's an extraordinary moment. And the, the, the making it even more extraordinary is the fact that Tiger had never acknowledged it until 20 years later when. Golf.com comes back on the anniversary of the 96, uh, that epic battle. And um, Tiger finally says that, you know, Steve, it was an it was an incredibly gracious thing for Steve to do. And but you would think, you know, a normal person would have said, oh, my God, Steve, I I can't even believe, you know, thank you so much for mentioning that. No, because. And, you know, as Christy, his wife, and I, I went there to Paramount Country Club and in New City, New York, and and sat with Steve and Christy for the better part of two or three hours. And, I mean, it's just those are the parts of the book that um, are, are so enriching for yes. me yes. as a journalist to tell those stories because they're not that well-known. I mean, the good golfer, the, the historian knows that Tiger beat Steve Scott you know, in the 96 amateur and, you know, pumpkin Ridge, but, but really what happened that day and what happened to Steve, you know, who goes on to be the number one amateur in America for a while. And like a lot of the, the, the people that tiger beat, whether it was Ryan armor or Steve Scott or, or trip Keeney, um, the fact that they came, the tiger came back against them, um, and beat them in, in, in heartbreaking ways for the, um, for the loser, it had a profound impact on their on their amateur careers and on their um, their look or their outlook on the game of golf. And Steve now is a he's a happy guy. He's married to a beautiful woman, both you know inside and out. They have two great kids, and he's a you know he's a very well respected PGA professional. And you you, you kind of wonder. He's like, well, what would you? You know, what would you do? Would you trade Tiger's life for Steve's life or Steve's life for Tiger's life? Um, you know, I don't know. But it's a it's a question that certainly you can ask. Yes. And such a fascinating dichotomy that comes out of that 1996 U.S. amateur that has, as you mentioned, a story that many people aren't aware of. A story, of course, that everyone, I would feel like, 
is aware of what took place in 2009 and then the ensuing apology on national television in February of 2010 with everything that transpired with Tiger's uh, off-the-course transgressions. How did you guys consciously decide you wanted to handle that in the book to to avoid a TMZ-like titillation chapter, but to try and make sure you tell the story but keep it relevant to what the mission was at the outset, Armin? That's a very good way to put it, uh, Tim. We... Jeff and I had many, many discussions about the tone of the book and and the how much was too much of of Tiger's sex life and the the infidelity. Uh, you know, the world um, stopped in many ways uh, when Tiger's true uh, secret life became public. I mean, the uh, the New York Post, for example, um, in the aftermath of of nine eleven. Uh, there was something 9-11 related on the cover of the New York Post for 20 straight days. Well, Tiger broke that record with 21 straight days on the cover of the tabloid of, of choice uh, for most people in New York City. And um, so when when we we kind of once we understand understood the contours of that part of Tiger's life, we we very consciously made decisions to include um, either certain women or certain aspects of, of his relationships with women that would play to the bigger theme of what led to the crash in November of 2009. And, and it's almost a lot of people have said, well, he, uh, it wasn't that he went off the rails. Didn't he go off the rails after his father died in, in May of 2006? And I think it's pretty clear from our reporting that uh, – that Earl removed the guardrails, perhaps his death, but Tiger was headed off the cliff. Uh, one could argue not long after he married Elon in 2004, uh, because he really didn't slow down um, with his relationships with other women, uh, really almost right through the marriage. And then it begins to pick up steam and Tiger's, making $100 million a year off the course. He's the most famous uh, athlete on the planet. And this is what comes to you when you're unmoored, um, or, you know, I think unmoored is probably a good word, in other aspects of your life. And so as the, it's almost like a slow motion film, you're watching the car, he's driving it, you know what's going to happen in November 2009, but you don't really know all the details. And yeah. I think by November when he's seeing, well, actually you go to the PGA in August and he loses to Y.E. Yang and you're like, wow, he's never lost a major when he's been ahead or tied leading in or going into the fourth round. And he loses to Y.E. Yang, a journeyman uh, with a capital J at that <laughs> point in time professional. Well, why did he do that? Well, because he was living, he was seeing four different women at the same time. And, you know, he had a wife with two children at home and he's he's just really headed off. Uh, he's off the rails, but he's still playing tremendous golf. He wins five times in 2009. So this is a man that has the ability to compartmentalize things in ways that are hard to believe. Um, and so we were we were taking all of that in and we were in the reader's seat trying to make sure that we didn't, it didn't get cringeworthy, um, particularly because we were critical in, to some degree of the 
exploitation of his life in the tabloid culture and how his how the rise, but particularly the fall of celebrities becomes little more than entertainment mm-hmm. for the rest of mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. And that that's Tiger's not the first one, but he may have been the the best one when it comes to that kind of failure. So um, all of that went into consideration. And it was uh, I'd, I'd say that was as careful uh, language and and decision making is that we had in in relative to that and also to the like the PED part of things. You know, how far did we want to go with that? The the Tigers lawyers and I, I would imagine this didn't come as a surprise to you and Jeff, but I don't want to suppose anything. Uh, call the book full of yeah. egregious errors. A former yeah. Bill Clinton aide uh, blasted a particular account of the Tiger Woods Bill Clinton round of golf at which he was there. Uh, that there is hardly an accurate or true word in the excerpt. First yeah. question: Do you expect that when you guys were writing it that they would dismiss it in that fashion? And secondly, how much does it bother you and Jeff after all of the work you put in to have that come out? Well, let me. I'll go back just a brief thing. We started with Mark Steinberg, his agent, and, and principally Glenn Greenspan, his his chief spokesman, in, in January of 2016. Um, in an attempt to not get an interview, but just begin a discussion uh, about the possibility of having an interview with Tiger. And mm-hmm. that that initial request was met with uh, an email that said before they would even, quote unquote, consider anything. Um, we had to tell them everybody that we had talked to, everything that they had said to us, and we had to provide them with a list of questions, which is their standard operating procedure um, when they want to take control of, of a narrative. And we, we didn't accept that on any uh, way, shape, or form because any serious journalist wouldn't accept those kind of conditions. So that's where we started. Um, am I surprised that they sent that, uh, which is essentially their cut-and-paste kind of letter to uh, email to people that we were speaking with? Not at all. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that it's one of the words they used, uh, not atypically was um, was it's a rehash of of everything that's been written. Well, this book is a lot of things, and it's been universally praised across the board by critics, literally all over the world. Um, it's not a rehash of anything, and as for as far as quote unquote littered with egregious errors, um, it's 404 pages long. There are um, tens of thousands of facts in this book. Did we get a small number, a handful of them incorrect, and have they already been um, changed in subsequent printings? Yes, they were. But what Mark and Glenn refused to do, they'd rather shoot the messenger and avoid the message, which is what the book is really about, which is something that they have spent the better part of their last 20 years protecting, which is who is Tiger Woods? They didn't want that out. Now, the last thing, because... Doug Band was the one that brought it up. He's Clinton's, uh, President Clinton's former longtime counselor. Um, and you're referring to the Golf Digest expert, excerpt. I, I did speak to, to Doug Band, and he has already um, publicly acknowledged that. I called him to fact check um, a number of things regarding the, the, the fivesome that played that day, of which Doug was one of the, of the members. Um, First of all, um, there was no issue um, 
Well, let me back up. What, what he said was just factually wrong. Um, there was an exchange of, uh, of a, no, no, a photograph between President Clinton and, and Tiger where President Clinton's people were trying to get uh, Tiger to sign it. It took a long time. Doug confirmed that, and, um, and it was his quote that ended the section that said, essentially, I'm Tiger Woods, king of the world, go, go F yourself. That's his now, as far as what happened that day, I had an entirely different source that was a member of that fivesome, who when I called that person up, I said, I'm just, again, trying to fact check some information. And, and I said, so this is what I know. He goes, Armin, hang on a second. Let me tell you exactly what happened that day. Mm. And it's that individual's recollection of, of how Tiger was, was acting towards the president and how he was um, dismissive of the group that became the the sole uh, source of the description that Doug Band uh, spent the better part of 2,000 words trying to um, deny. So, look, I understand it's big boy journalism. Um, I'm sure what happened is is that uh, the Golf Digest uh, excerpt came out. A phone call was made. Uh, you don't have to guess from who to who. And the next thing you know, Doug Band's denying anything that ever happened that day. So um, am I surprised? Uh, no, but I, I find it, frankly, from the Steinberg Greenspan side of things, uh, insulting that, that they, they treat, it's not just Jeff and I, they treat everybody that's in our business with a certain level of disdain and that, that somehow we're not professional and they're the professionals here because of one thing. They have Tiger Woods, and that's their, their sole mission is to um, basically control the narrative from, the, from start to finish, and that just wasn't going to happen in this case. Did you expect to get Tiger Woods when you guys set out with this project, or do you consider that like a 10% probability? I think about a 1%. 1, okay. Uh, yeah, you know, a point one of 1%. <laughs> Tiger's... Tiger's history is is not to engage in projects like ours because um, he doesn't control it and he doesn't really benefit from it and that, you know, financially benefit from it. And that was understandable. But what we did want was an opportunity to just, you know, run by things, run things by him. And frankly, Tim, we did that. We sent, you know, right up until January of 2018, we sent Glenn Greenspan a letter an email saying, look, we're ready to go to press here, but we'll hold off until February um, 5th in the hopes of, of, of at least Tiger engaging in these specific areas. Now, did we give him specific questions? No. I've worked at 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes didn't give President Obama or President Putin um, exact questions. Will they give you areas that they're interested in talking about? Yes, which we did. And that was met with silence until February 6th, the day after the deadline, typical of Green, Glenn Greenspan, to give us another journalism lesson, you know, about what, what it is we should have done and why we didn't do this and that. And it, by that point in time, you're, you know, enough's enough. And um, so we never really thought we would get Tiger, but Tiger is in this book. And he's in this book because we spent so much time um, going through all the th things that he had said back to the time when he was a, he was a teenager mm -hmm. and 
going over 320 of his official press conferences, mining those press conferences, and, and annotating those press conferences for specific areas in which he discussed. So when we got to those areas in the narrative, we knew where to look to find something that he had said of importance or of insight or reflection in, in that part of his life. So, um, you know, Tiger's, he's there, and he's there, um, I think, in a real um, rich and, and revealing way, but it's, you've got to put the puzzle together, and it's not necessarily all that easy. Hope you're enjoying our interview with Armin Katayan here on the Tim McKernan Show and the Inside STL Podcast Network. Our sponsors are the key to making the show continue. And James Carlton has been with us from the very beginning with home buying season heating up after you get pre-approved with Ryan Kelly and the HomeLoanExpert.com team. Be sure to get a quote from a top agency and provider of the number one home insurer in North America. That's James Carlton and State Farm Insurance. 314-961-4800. That's 314-961-4800. Or go online at carltoninsurance.net. To make the switch, it's easy. They do all the work for you. It just takes one phone call. 314-961-4800. Or you can apply online at carltoninsurance.net. People do business with James because they like him and they trust him. Just check him out on Google and Facebook, and you will understand why when you see the reviews praising him. They offer coverages that are second to none, and it's all at James Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency. It's carltoninsurance.net, 314-961-4800. I've gotten to know James, respect him a great deal, know he knows his business like nobody else. 314-961-4800 or go online at carltoninsurance.net. You keep using the word journalism, and that's the word that I think of when I read the backstory on how you and Jeff Benedict put this entire project together. And then as I read it, it struck me, like I said, as like a long-form piece that happened to be a book. It was, it was absolute journalism. It's like synonymous with the word journalism. So I'm curious, Armin, uh, as you made reference to having worked at 60 Minutes, uh, having done what you've done in your career, what are your thoughts, um, if you can, in a way, separate yourself from uh, having done it and having been in the trenches and being in the trenches in the state of sports journalism and perhaps journalism as a whole in 2018 versus whether you'd want to cite 2008, 1998, 1988. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You're debating whether or not you really want to answer. I'm just trying to figure out the, I mean, that's a lot of the waterfront to cover, but let me, let me say this. I think in, in terms of some of the, uh, the great journalism, journalism that's being done today, um, compared to the past, there there is some really high quality work being done right now. Um, whether it's at the Ringer, or whether it's um, you know Lee Jenkins or Greg Bishop or um, S. L. Price at, at, at Sports Illustrated, um, is it is it at the level it was when I was there in 1982 when you had William Knack and Frank DeFord and and William Oscar Johnson and and Dan Jenkins and and Jack McCallum and a, and a Kenny Moore and it's just this, you know, just this unbelievable roster of of uh, journalistic superstars. Uh, no, I don't think that's the that's the case. But there are um, day in and day out. Do I read things that I'm like, oh my God, that was an incredible piece of reporting? Um, yes. Do is the, is it being done at the network level? 
um, like it was in the past with, um, you know, when I was at ABC, Dick Schapp was there and Ray Gandalf was there. Different, different storytelling talents, but still um, Hall of Fame kind of talents. I think ESPN and Outside the Lines, um, E60, uh, certainly Real Sports to me is mm-hmm. the gold standard of yeah. sports journalism right now. And I, I had the pleasure of working there for for 10 years. And I think day in and or month in and month out, they produce an incredible show. Um, I'm more, I guess, dismayed um, with the, the state of, of um, sports talk and opinion uh, and, and masquerading as, as um, insight. And I think what we're, what I'm witnessing now is just the NFL draft. I mean, we're on the, you know, about to, that's about to explode. Um, and it, it's, I, I just, I've just never seen people that just have opinions about everything and anything. <laughs> and because of whether it's a podcast or whether it's sports talk radio, and I'm not blaming sports talk radio because you're, you're, you're trying to engage the listener, but it would be nice if sometimes people that, that are spouting opinions actually went out and did some reporting about what, what those opinions are based on. Um, other than, then I've just, I just hear people say this and that about LeBron. Um, and then the next day LeBron turns it upside down with his performance on the floor. And you're just like, okay, so what are they going to say tomorrow? And it doesn't matter what they said yesterday because they're just filling a vacuum. And I, I don't, I, I'm not sure. Um, well, I, I am sure the, the day-to-day newspaper, um, you know, we're in the wake of Eileen Voison from the Sacramento Bee, who has such great respect in our uh, business. And who I knew back in the days in San Diego, um, the SAC Bee just, you know, determined they don't need a sports media, uh, sports columnist anymore right. on, the, on their paper. I, I don't know how in a city like Sacramento, you know, that has, you know, professional teams in that or professional team there that uh, in, in the state capital of California, where politics and money and sports intersect all the time, you can't have somebody help people understand what's going on in the world of sports. I mean, to me, it's 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 unconscionable. But I, I still have hope, but I think the what Jeff and I are trying to do is is I think for me I I my opinions come uh, and maybe people are saying you know contrary to what you're saying right now Armin but my opinions are are pretty carefully thought out and they don't come out every single day and I like to let my reporting do the talking and so same way it's been when I sit across somebody in an interview. I want to be incredibly prepared, but it's not about me. It's about the person across from me. And my job is to help the person at home understand um, why this person did what they did or what they did or how that impacted other people's lives. It's not me giving my opinion and then asking a question or my opinion. So what do you think kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And it's, in this day and age, um, things are happening so quickly, um, literally minute by minute sometimes, that it's hard to cut through. And I, I've just kind of decided that with me, 
it's less is more in terms of when I do something, um, it's going to speak for itself and I'll, I'll let other people decide whether it's worth talking about. Um, and then, uh, I'll just kind of go from there. And I hoped him that made some sense. Yeah. Oh, and it, it makes, uh, it makes, it, it, it's, it makes all the sense in the world. And I, and I, and I love that. The thing that I wonder about, you know, I went to the University of Missouri Journalism School. Well, there you go. That's that's, <laughs> that's one of the gold standards in our business. And, and I and I, I, I t- you know, don't if you listen to our our radio show, you'd go, oh my god, you know, it's it's an absolute moron festival. However, when it comes to when it comes to discussing topics and treating the truth and the pursuit of truth, I couldn't take that more seriously. That is my roots in. And, and reporting, and that, that does go back to the University of Missouri Journalism School without without question. But what I see right now, and I wonder about, is I feel like the financial reward for people in our field is actually more so in getting engagement on social media, which then can lead to shows, which of course leads to saying asinine things for attention, and that's where the money is, as opposed to shows such that you cited, uh, that are either getting cut back or moved around constantly or doing the caliber of reporting that, for example, you and Jeff did in this book. Yeah. And that's what I wonder about for the future of actual journalism, if there is little financial reward slash incentive for young people to pursue that versus tweeting out something asinine about LeBron or injecting politics to en- into any little thing to try and uh, engage a base of audience that you know is yeah. going to retweet it. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, all of that. And I think the, I mean, you're in a city, St. Louis, that has, you know, tremendous history uh, with Bob Costas and Jack Buck and, and Bernie and all the, the, the real star writers that have chronicled that city's, you know, impressive and, and, and um, honorable sports history uh, dating back to when I was growing up and I'll just when the Tigers were playing the Cardinals in the 68 World Series, where I've got my first real, you know, dose of, in, and Stan Musial and people like that, mm-hmm. where I grew up with those names. So St. Louis, unlike, or unlike few cities in the country to me, has a real uh, history of, of, of sports journalism that runs through it. But today, if I was me today, and I started you know, writing on the, for the campus newspaper. And then I went to a weekly newspaper, then to a daily newspaper where I, I really came up the ranks in, in, in San Diego, um, before I got the biggest, one of the biggest breaks in my life to go to sports illustrated, but I was prepared journalistically for that today. The people that are coming into our business are asked to do so much more Mm -hmm. in terms of they have to be able to shoot. They have to be able to edit. They have to be able to basically do their own stand-ups. They they are they are pulled. And on top of that, they need to file for a website or they need to do a blog. And I work in a business where it was and still do at the level that I work at. It's very collaborative. I have a I have a cameraman. I have a sound man. I have a producer. I have an associate producer. But a I've earned the right to have that kind of group around me because the stories we produce are at places that can afford that. But coming up through the ranks now, I can see where kids just go. I'm, I'm, I'm dog tired because I'm doing I have to file three different stories for the cable network or for the um, uh, you know, the local station every single day. And 
all I all I'm getting judged on in many ways, uh, short sighted as it can be, is how do I look on camera yeah. and what's yeah. my what's my take on this, that or the other thing. And I mean, I I watch ESPN now and I, I will be critical here. Sometimes when I'm watching SportsCenter, I don't know if I'm what I'm watching. I don't know if I'm supposed to watch what's on the screen or if I'm supposed to be entertained by the jocular byplay between the, the two anchors. And to me, I understand why, to a certain degree, why they're doing that, because they're, they're just trying to catch an eyeball as, it, as it's flipping through the cable universe. But does that do our business any good? No, because that's what the guy down in, the, in Raleigh, North Carolina, or in Columbia, Missouri, or in Phoenix, Arizona says, okay, I got to have a shtick because the fact that I'm just doing solid journalism and telling really strong stories um, ain't going to cut it these days. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know what the answer to that is. I really, I really don't. I don't, know whether, I don't know whether I would go into this business right now uh, knowing what I know um, uh, and what I see. It's, it's, um, you know, you're in a lot of ways, you're asking people to do almost the impossible to, to not grab at the, at the apple and just say, you know what, in order to get to the top, I have to really understand how to tell a story. And that, that hasn't changed. And I'll say that to people that are listening that want to be, you know, that would like my job someday. If you can't write, if you don't know how to tell a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and if you don't know how to interview somebody, if you don't know how to report, if you don't understand how to find and use public record um, to really build, and, and, and more importantly, as a basis to how to ask a question, um, you're going to get so far, and you may even get to the network level for a period of time, and you might blossom and become a big quote unquote star, but you're not going to be a journalist. And trust me, there's still a market because I have those kids at 60 and 60 sports and people I worked with on this book, Tim uh, Bella, who was an amazing reporter. Um, you know, reporting still works. It's old school, but it's still, it's, it's the golden rule. It's the golden rule at 60 minutes. It's the golden rule at at real sports, it's the golden rule, or was the golden rule at 60 Minutes Sports, and it's the golden rule of this book. You know, there's 60 pages of source notes here in this book. And it's yeah, that was amazing. That, that was amazing. That was yeah. amazing. That and was we amazing. wanted to, we just wanted to let people know in a very transparent way where all this stuff was coming from, that we didn't just make it up out of thin air. And it took Jeff and I the better part of two weeks, 10 hours a day, and I'm not asking for pats on the back or anything else, but I'm just saying, you know, we spent the better part of, God, I don't know, 100 hours putting those source notes together. And um, because we wanted to, 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 to lay down a marker for people to go, OK, where did that come from? Oh, that's what he said mm-hmm. in a press conference in, yeah. in 2003. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, not that there was a question on the credibility, I think, from the vast majority of readers, but if there was, there it is. You can you can go right back to it. So I'm curious, Armin, now that you guys have have captured, from my standpoint anyway, journalistically, the white whale with, with, with Tiger Woods, is there something that you and Jeff are going, okay, this is, this is next, this is the next play? 
This uh, is the next God, topic. No. I mean, well, the next play is there. Uh, we're working with um, Alex Gibney, uh, the Academy Award winning uh, documentary uh, film director to turn our book uh, into a docuseries. Uh, we just finished um, about two weeks worth of uh, meetings with kind of a who's who of the cables and the networks. Um, everybody from, you know, Netflix to Apple to A&E to FX to HBO, Showtime, ESPN, they're all interested. So that's that's kind of where I'm um, turning my focus. I'm also... So is this, good? is this a potential like 30 for 30 series that we're talking about? It would about be... Um, right now it's a four-hour... It's being pitched as a four-hour um, miniseries. Okay. And... Um, I'm also working with um, with ESPN on a 30 for 30 that will air in um, July of 2019. Kind of an investigative film that they're they're branching the 30 for 30 film series, which has been so successful, um, steering a little away from the historical and into the more contemporary, uh, with an investigative edge. That that um, I'm involved with a. Uh, uh, a director by the name of Nanette Burstein, who's uh, incredibly gifted and 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 multi award winning uh, uh, director. So I'm kind of moving in that direction. I think the the idea, actually, Tim, of doing another book right now, is um, it would be the equivalent of me saying I'm just going to you know go up a mountain and jump off. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was wondering about, you know, I did a show with Joe Buck, total uh, name drop here, but I've been you know, yeah. friends with Joe. We did a show one week. He, we wanted to see if we were going to do a podcast and we did it a few years ago and he was just texting everybody. And of course you can text anybody and they would come on. Our guest list was ridiculous. And one time he texted Eddie Vedder and Eddie's response. And it was so like the textbook rock and roll response was yeah. I'm currently JB. I'm currently down here writing lyrics and by down here, he meant he was in a place where he didn't want to come up and do an interview because it was so yeah. exhausting to pour himself out. And I have to think, considering what you guys put into this, not only to research, then write, then promote, I mean, that would be the equivalent of running marathon after marathon after marathon. Yeah, we didn't. I mean, I'm not asking for the public sympathy, but if they're if they're interested in understanding it as you you basically live with Tiger uh, for the better part of three years. And I lived with him almost daily the last year to the point where my lovely wife of 38 years was, was just about ready to stab me, with, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a, a plastic fork, hopefully <laughs> if I brought up Tiger Woods one more time, but I, I still um, have dreams about him and I still have, you know, you deal with, like you mentioned, not only the writing and the reporting um, and but then you deal with the vetting of the book and you deal with the fact checking of the book and you deal with the the enormous anticipation. Is it going to sell and is it going to be well reviewed? And thankfully, all of those, you know, as we speak, it's number three on the New York Times bestseller list and hardcover nonfiction. And but then you but then you just it doesn't leave you in a weird way. I still have these dreams where he's in them. And I'm I'm in a moment where I'm thinking, you know, what did he do here again? And then I know what he did because I wrote that section of the book. And <laughs> it doesn't it, it doesn't go away easily. And you invest so much um, professional, 
personal, emotional, physical capital into these things that that um, you can only and I under, I don't know Eddie, but I I think I know where he was where I know where he's at. Right. Because uh, I was in there too, and it's a you fall through this trap door and you're down there for about you know three years of your life. At the same time, for much of that, I was you know doing you know, sixty minutes and sixty minutes sports. Right. So it's a it's not for the faint of heart, I'll say that. Well, the, the work paid off because the book, I mean, for real. I mean, I realize, you know, people will say, oh, the book's great, and then they maybe read like a synopsis on Wikipedia or something. But yeah. I, I couldn't be more engrossed by it. I think it's something that somebody, oh, they're not even you. a golf fan, just appreciate the journalism that went into it and the number of sources and the anecdotes that helped build this person that we know now as one of the greatest golfers of all yeah. time, but also one of the most fascinating characters the book, Tiger Woods with Jeff Benedict and our guest, Armin Katayan. Also grateful, Armin, not only to talk about the book, but uh, sports journalism in 2018 with you. Really appreciate the time. As oh, always, I, I say half hour, and then I go damn near an hour, so I'm, well, a, I'm a fraud, and I apologize. No, you didn't. No, I, I really, if, trust me, I really enjoyed it, and it's uh, it's a pleasure to do your show, and, and thank you for um, you know being really prepared and asking some really smart questions. So uh, we'll do it again. I appreciate it, Armin. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So there it is, Armin Katayan here on the Tim McKernan Show talking Tiger Woods and also talking about the state of sports journalism in 2018. I knew that would get him going because we've had him on the Ryan Kelly morning after uh, in the past and it would get him going. And now, considering the use of Twitter and not naming uh, sources and just kind of going off half-cocked with an opinion on LeBron James to get attention, really the goal being engagement, i.e. trolling, uh, and seeing that that is where it is at this point is something that I knew would uh, be something he'd be fired up to talk about. And then in addition, uh, the book, I've just, you know, initially I picked it up because I knew we were having him on and I wanted to be informed for the interview. And then as I read it, it's be it's become this go-to play uh, anytime people talk about a book. And I said, you've got to read the Tiger Woods book. It is so good and it is so detailed and it gives you a total like I'll watch Tiger Woods uh do press conferences now and I have a totally different view uh just because you hear the inner workings and the way that he was raised I think that's the real key that's the biggest takeaway is the dynamic between Tiger and Earl Woods and how that led to the way he conducted himself uh so the book is Tiger Woods and Armin Katayan our guest. As always, thank you for listening to the program. Thank you to thehomeloanexpert.com and to James Carlton for sponsoring the program. And thank you to our executive producer, John Seymour, and our videographer, Nick Yale, for producing and shooting the video of The Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network from thehomeloanexpert.com studios.